Welcome to the Sydney Ideas podcast series. Sydney Ideas is the University of Sydney's public events program, providing you with the opportunity to hear leading thinkers from our university and around the world. Enjoy the podcast. Good evening. My name is Carrie Farmer and I'm an investigative journalist with the Sydney Morning Herald. Before we begin, I'd like to acknowledge and pay my respects to the traditional owners of the land on which we meet, the elders, past and present, of the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation. I'd also like to thank Sydney Ideas and Sydney University for hosting this discussion in partnership with the Walkley Foundation for Excellence in Journalism. He's become one of the country's most distinguished journalists and formidable interviewers over a career spanning more than 50 years. His razor-sharp questioning has made more than one Australian leader squirm during a long tenure as the anchor of the ABC's 7.30 report. But tonight, we're lucky to have journalist Kerry O'Brien on the other side of the microphone, reflecting on his Gold Walkley-winning documentary, Circle of Poison. Kerry has won six Walkley Awards in total and a Logie Award. He's also served as the host of Four Corners and worked as a press secretary to Labor leader Gough Whitlam. We're also fortunate this evening to be joined by Tim Driscoll, a professor of epidemiology and occupational medicine at the University of Sydney. He has a particular interest in exposures to carcinogens in the workplace, as well as improving the communication of scientific findings to the general public. Professor Driscoll is currently playing a leading role in the Global Burden of Disease Study, a collaboration between over 1,800 researchers from 127 countries. Tonight's talk reflects on a story from decades ago, but in many ways it's still relevant today. It was 1982 when a sprightly young Kerry O'Brien spotted a news brief about an arsenic-based chemical being used to treat cattle exports. It was the catalyst for a three-month investigation which would blow the lid on the dangers posed by toxic chemicals in everyday Australia. It exposed a haphazard and arguably a cavalier approach to regulation, allowing dangerous chemicals to enter the market unchecked. 37 years later, there are questions over how much progress has been made since then. Chemicals used in weed killers and firefighting foams are posing headaches for regulators, sparking class actions and raising fears over possible cancer clusters. The health effects of these chemicals can polarise academics, regulators, chemical companies and exposed individuals. For investigative journalists, it's difficult terrain to navigate. The best journalism relies on an ability to draw on the most credible information that we have. But when we investigate a contentious area, there's often a raft of opinions which can be influenced by business objectives, political agendas and personal beliefs. While academic evidence may not always be perfect, we know that journalists and scientists working together is one of the best ways to safeguard public health and fight against misinformation. Kerry, many of those in our audience might not have seen your documentary. Can you, tell us, more? <laughs> Can you tell us more about the catalyst for making Circle of Poison in 1982 and what surprised you most at the time? Well, it was supposed to be a new story, which means um, that I was, I was checking at a tiny two or three sentence report that had appeared in the bottom of one of the then broadsheet pages of the Herald, I think. And it was about um, a chemical being used in cattle dip 
so ticks, uh, which had the potential to uh, affect Australia's export industry. So it potentially was a big story. Uh, and it had been almost thrown away. But in the process of starting to walk down that path, it was like opening Pandora's box in a sense. And the story just got bigger and bigger and bigger uh, to the point where in the Channel 7 newsroom, I think people were wondering what on earth I was doing as I gradually disappeared behind a pile of paper. Uh, along the way, I discovered that uh, that there had been a parliamentary joint parliamentary committee going on that had taken something like three or six, I've forgotten the, the numbers now, but, but, but a massive number of pages of, of Hansard um, uh, submissions and evidence from a whole raft of people across not just the scientific community, trade unions concerned about uh, workforce, chemical comp uh, companies defending themselves, regulators had views. There were uh, a massive number of, of submissions. So I waded through all of that as well, and gradually this picture emerged of an industry which was, I won't say running unchecked, but it might as well have been because the regulation was at best sloppy. Uh, there were a huge number of chemicals that, that were unscreened. There seemed to be no great consistency in the way regulators were viewing chemicals uh, that were, where, where flags were being, danger flags were being raised in uh, countries uh, around Europe and in the United States. And uh, this was an era when, uh, when a chemical that would be banned in the United States, the companies were still flogging it across the, the uh, developing world. Uh, across the continent of, of Africa, DDT was still being used many years after it had been banned in the United States and elsewhere. And there were some uh, chemicals being used in Australia, which from memory uh, had been banned overseas, or where there were serious concerns raised about, uh, about them being potentially carcinogenic. Uh, or harmful in other ways. And, uh, and so uh, we, we went down that trail and it was a long exercise and Patrice Newell, who had not been a journalist, came on board as my researcher um, um, about halfway through the process and she was a godsend. She was fantastic. Patrice is now an organic farmer who writes books about this stuff, amongst other things. Um, so uh, I saw the victims too and that's what spurred me on, you know, in, in agriculture. Uh, poor old, uh, relatively uh, uneducated uh, workers uh, in the cotton spraying uh, industry, standing like dummies with flags as the crop dusters flew overhead with the chemicals, you know, and there was the visual evidence of it. And then talking with this guy with his respirator four times a day, uh, his life absolutely ruined, or the bloke who was exposed to epoxy resins in, uh, in the building trade, whose entire body uh, was, uh, was a kind of dermatological nightmare, uh, and who brought in two massive sacks of the pills he'd gone through in the previous year trying to bring this under control. His life ruined, his marriage ruined, everything. And uh, kids, like 17 and 18 year old kids uh, in an in a almost backyard factory in Melbourne suburbs, sent into a giant uh, vat uh, to clean it, I think it was trichloroethylene, where ethylide was the, don't hold me to it, it was, a, it was an industrial solvent that was being used and it was lethal. And there they were in the bottom of this vat uh, with, with spades and buckets cleaning the sludge out. Uh, the two of them collapsed and were, were pulled out of the vat unconscious and died two or three days later. And the stories like that just kept coming. The cadmium 
plant, uh, where the industrial chemist who was investigating the issues there walked into the into the uh, canteen at this plant to talk to these people, and it was like something out of uh, Charlie Charlie and the Chocolate Factory, and the Oompa Loompas. You know, these people were sitting around with different coloured faces depending on the pigments they'd been working with: red faces, orange faces, blue faces, and so on. Uh, so it just became. It ended up as a ninety-minute documentary. Uh, and uh, and what came of that, I'm still not sure. You know, I mean, I followed up individual. I chased various hairs down burrows subsequently for a while. There was a big reaction from the public. I think some things. Uh, um, Brian Howe was the chair of that particular parliamentary committee, and when Labor got into power in '83, one of the things that did change, they brought in much stricter rules on labelling. I mean, it went through. We went through chemicals in the household, and there were massive numbers of them. Uh, and that, that's the fundamental point in the end: that that we are exposed massively uh, to chemicals, most of them unknown to us. The vast bulk of them unknown to us. Many of them we're not even aware we're absorbing them, and most of those chemicals really were kind of taken on trust. We're not properly screened, um, and uh, and the. the the, the basic fundamental rights that I think we have to know what we're taking in was completely ignored. And, uh, and one of the defences from some people who would try to support chemicals that were known to be potential carcinogens, they would say, well, the sun's a carcinogen. You're exposed to the sun. The difference is that you've actually got a choice about how much you expose yourself to the sun. You don't have a choice about how you're exposed to many of these chemicals, and a current one is glyphosate, but I'm sort of jumping ahead of it. So, so it was a, a kind of, it was a huge story to try and do. Uh, and, and we were still, I think, even though it ran to a 90-minute documentary, run in 30-minute slabs over three nights, it was still just scratching the surface. And, and can you speak to that, uh, Tim, the impact of it and, and how far our systems come since then in regulating toxic chemicals? Mm. Yeah, I, actually, I don't remember seeing the, um, the show at the time, but I've seen it since. And, yeah, it was a very powerful um, documentary. And I, I was mentioning before that there were some aspects of it that are very different. So, for example, the work-related Exposures. I would hope that that is a very, very rare occurrence in Australia today. It wasn't 35 years ago, but there's no doubt that uh, the occupational health and safety systems have improved, but they're not perfect. And we might talk a bit later on about it, but, for example, the issues with silicosis now are an example where we should have had good control. That should not happen in a developed country. I shouldn't happen anywhere, but definitely not in a developed country like Australia. Yet it has because we haven't been paying attention and I think we haven't been putting the resources into the regulation and the monitoring and supporting people and informing people, as Kerry said before. In terms of actually what came out of it, I was thinking, um, I worked for the National Occupational Health and Safety Commission and that was established when the Labor government came in. And I wonder whether your program had some stimulus with that because that was an agency, a statutory authority looking after occupational health and safety at the national level, whereas before that it had really been at a state level. Right. And I think, I think Brian Howard, I think his first ministry was health. I could be wrong. And, uh, and he had been a powerful influence with that committee. So I'm certainly not going to claim the credit for it. In fact, uh, without that 
evidence kind of handed to me uh, on a platter. It still took a massive effort to sift through it all and work out the kind of the really credible stuff and, and what to actually chase after. Um, but uh, and I'd like to think that the, the documentary crystallised a lot of that and kind of reduced it down to a, to a, um, a reasonably um, friendly form. To absorb, but but um, God, Tim. I mean, I I still don't have much faith. I have to say. I mean, I I'm reassured to some degree by some of the conversations we've had, but um, but I find it very hard to trust industry on this. They've got form. Well, I'd say, Kerry, the documentary opens with um, you at the stove cooking your sausages for breakfast um, and, and it really sort of raises the idea of um, all the chemicals that are in the household, you know, the shampoos and conditioners, hair dyes, um, all that kind of thing. How much risk do those they pose? Uh, I have friends that will use organic toothpaste and things like that. Is that a marketing gimmick or is that worthwhile? <laughs> Uh, look, I don't actually know. Uh, I'm not an organic eater in general, uh, and I think most of the day-to-day chemicals that we're exposed to, I'm happy in the form that they're supposed to be used are safe, in inverted commas, um, enough to be used. So I don't worry in my day-to-day life walking, working around the envi- walking around the environment. But we have to be um, pay attention. I mean, we shouldn't, with any chemical, I think, we should take the approach that we don't want to be exposed if we can reasonably avoid it. Lots of times we can't reasonably avoid it. As Kelly said, thousands of chemicals we get exposed to regularly, but we should try and minimise our exposure. Uh, so don't use it if we don't have to. Minimise our exposure if we do and take what precautions we can. One of the things that... Uh uh, was classic of, of that era and, uh, and I interviewed a spokesman for the chemical industry who basically froze on here when we got to the question of where there's doubt who should get the benefit of the doubt the, the people who are exposed to it or the chemical itself and he fundamentally couldn't answer the question and sat there frozen for about 10 seconds and then asked to be excused um, but, but that uh, he tried to pass the responsibility on to the rest of us uh, for knowing all these things by saying, but look, we put out fact sheets on these chemicals. Yes, some of these chemicals are deadly and they can be pretty awful, but we put out fact sheets. Like, uh, hand me the bowl of water and I'll wash my hands. Uh, and, uh, and, and even some of those fact sheets, how, how much could you trust that the whole picture was being faithfully presented in the fact sheets? And then there was the question of where there were regulations, where there were rules applying to chemicals being used, uh, how effective were the regulators? Well, they weren't. And, uh, and at the very time, uh, I didn't know this at the time, but at the very time that I was working on that documentary, the Reagan administration was busily deregulating the entire economy. And there was a classic shot of, uh, of George Bush Sr., Reagan's vice president, standing on a Monsanto chemical plant site, boasting about how they were deregulating everything for that industry. Uh, so... Uh, and, and two questions, Tim. Uh, there was poor epidemiology back then. There was poor regulation back then. 
Um, and so I won't necessarily reflect on individual regulators trying to do their job, but there were far too few of them anyway. And you had a sense. We had one, we shot one sequence of an inspector uh, out on a farm um, talking with, uh, with a chemical seller, you know, with the, with the wholesaler of the chemical at a farm where, uh, where the inspector was telling me how extraordinarily fantastic and responsible the chemical industry was. Uh, so that was then. So what has changed? I mean, almost, almost nothing was, was known statistically about the state of cancer in Australia at that time. The Cancer Council was just beginning to start to put some stats together. A lot of hospitals weren't collating stuff. Epidemiology was pretty basic. So how much better is that? Epidemiology is fantastic now. <laughs> um, look, it is much better. In Australia, it is much better. So, for example, the uh, national database on cancer run by the Australian Institute of Health and Welfare started in 1982, and it's really good. Uh, a lot of the information that we have now on chemicals uh, and their effects on health are coming from epidemiological studies. And there are lot, literally thousands of epidemiologists across the world who were working on these sort of projects. So, and the well, What's the pattern? I mean, how, how do you decide when to do a study and who decides? Is it, is it an academic pursuit? Where does the government sit in that? Look, it's a mixture. Uh, some studies come up through investigator interest. Sometime, but most of the time you can't do a study if you haven't got funding. You need external funding. And so the funders can guide that. So the National Health and Medical Research Council are probably the biggest funders uh, of epidemiological studies in Australia, I think. And they will, some, they will have some unconstrained funds so that I could apply and say, look, I want to look at substance X. And if they think it's a good enough study, they're giving money and I go and do it. Other times they will have a particular um, area that, is looked at, well, that they want to look at, or the government will release funds particularly to look at it. So that can guide people. Most of the time it's investigator-driven stuff, though. There can also be industry-funded um, money, too, but you always have to be a bit wary about studies that are funded by industry. Really? Because I would say <laughs> with, um, I've been covering um, extensively over the last few years uh, perfluorinated chemicals, uh, PFAS, and one of the major problems that we have in Australia is the fact that we have communities um, whose properties have been heavily contaminated with PFAS. They have extremely high levels of PFAS in their blood. Um, and basically, the only epidemiological evidence that they have to go by is the studies that have been done by the manufacturer 3M, who has also been found to be secretly funding academics um, in order to bury bad science and promote science, which shows that the chemicals are safe. They've been lobbying governments around the world um, and so when our government comes along and says here's a study by 3M that shows that you're going to be okay um, how much confidence you know how, how are they able to have confidence that that means anything and what we've also seen is that no academics seem to have taken on studies themselves to look at um, you know we haven't seen any large-scale epidemiological studies done by independent academics except for one in the US which looked at another chemical that they haven't been exposed to so there's a few questions in there um, but in terms of what would I think about studies funded by 3M I'd be sceptical I'd look at who did them but, and I'd look at what was done but I, even then I would 
be skeptical. I wouldn't dismiss it, but I would worry about it. Um, why people haven't taken it on, I don't have a good feel for. But I know that there is a study now underway in Newcastle. Uh, there's an epidemiological study being done there, um, I think by the ANU, which has been going on for a year or two and still got a few years to go. And I think that's aimed to try and give some definitive information. But I don't have a good feel whether there are enough people involved, uh, you know, enough in the population to actually give a definitive answer to that. But I haven't been involved in the study, so I don't know the details of that. I think there was, um, at that 3M plant in West Virginia, there was a huge court settlement. And one of the great things I thought that came out of that court settlement was about $30 million or something like that that 3M had to pay to the courts for an epidemiological study to be done. So they didn't, although it was their money, they didn't fund it in the normal way that industry would fund it. And that's a nice way to get some epidemiology done. In other words, it was clean money. There were no strings. That's my understanding. It came to the court. The court said, you've got to pay $100 million to this group of people and you need $30 million uh, that uh, will be used for an epidemiological study that we, the court, will run. Yeah. One of the – I mean, I just look back on it. In fact, it's the first time I've sat down and tried to look at the whole thing. But um, uh, the, we got to a chemical called dichlorvos. Is that an organophosphorus? Organophosphorus, okay. So big question marks around a lot of that stuff. Um, dichlorvos um, was used uh, in agriculture and it's used in household products. It was used in fly strips. It was used in fly sprays. You could buy it off the shelf um, and, and it, had, um, it had question marks about whether it was potentially carcinogenic. So um, there was a lot of concern about dichlorvos in 1982. In 1996, because I went back, I, I wondered what had happened with dichlorvos as a kind of mini test, and just um, pulled up the, the study that there were reviews, they called it. Now, what are they called? What's the current regulator for the, the AP? APVMA. APVMA. I've never been very good on acronyms. But so they, they are the regulator for the agricultural sector, right? Okay. So in 1996, they, they announced they were conducting a review on dichlorvos. In 2000, they came up with an interim response to their first four years uh, and said, but we've got fresh information now, so we're going to keep going. In 2008, they came up with another report. And in 2011, they came up with another one. Now, that's 15 years. And the, the terminology that was used, they didn't talk about something being banned or they talk, didn't talk about uh, the, the, the kind of clarity of the terminology, I thought, left something to be desired. They talked about, we support this, we don't support that. It sounded really quite passive. And it took 15 years, and I still don't know what the outcome was. So what, what does that tell us? And I think that was something that you touched on in the documentary because you were talking to this uh, chemical industry representative and asking why there was a lack of information on labelling. And he was saying, well, if we put all the information on there, carcinogenic, those kind of terms, people won't understand. And you were asking, well, why can't you talk in language that people will understand? Like this might cause cancer. Hmm. Yeah. <laughs> That's hard. What do you think, Tim? I know you have um, some opinions on, on transparency. Um, oh, yeah. Uh, labeling's 
been a long-running issue. Industry don't like saying this might cause cancer. No, no surprise. But I don't think that's a reason not to do it. Um, Kerry mentioned early on that uh, from the circle of poison, that the problem at that stage where people were not informed. And I think there is still an issue. I think the community is better informed and workers are better informed but there still leaves a lot to be desired from that point of view. Uh, and I think there's a, a real onus on people like me and I guess people like you two to help people be properly informed and not just give them the information, but give them the skills to understand the information. Um, and, and related to that, I'd really like people to have an understanding about what risk is and how to feel about risk. Because some people feel that as soon as they're exposed to something, they're going to die from it. And in the vast majority of things, the bigger your exposure, the higher your risk, and the lower your exposure, the lower your risk. And it's very difficult in life to have no risk. And isn't it also hard to actually nail down um, what uh, if you've got the job of trying to establish a safe level of exposure yeah. against an unsafe? Yeah. There is still an enormous amount of guesswork in that, isn't there? Yeah, well, it varies, I'd say, between guesswork and other situations you can be reasonably confident. But... It still boils down to the fact of what should the, even if you knew... Because you've got to wait 20 or 30 years to find out if you were right. Yeah, it, that's right. Uh, and even if you knew what the risk level was, who's to say what risk, where that should be set? Uh, in OSHA, the um, US body, their standard is they'll accept that they could have an increased risk of one in a thousand people dying. That's the level they set the risk at. And that's pretty similar for us. I'm thinking Australia would use it's a crook if you're the one. It is. It's, it's crook if you're the one. Uh, but you have to choose somewhere. You know, should it be one in a thousand? Should it be one in ten thousand? Yeah. One in a hundred thousand? Uh, and diff different people have different ideas. About yeah. So those are the, those decisions are being taken somewhere. Mm. But but none of that actually filters down. Uh, it's 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 like they're 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 sort of taken around the corner and, and, and I'm not saying it's got to be <laughs> I, I don't want to make it, make it too kind of sinister that these are done these things are done in the back rooms the bottom line about it though is that a lot of it is done uh, with the complete ignorance of the vast majority of people there is no real public debate about this unless unless a potential problem exposes itself like glyphosate, glyphosate. and um, on that note when today when you you know investigating what had happened with that chemical it was even as journalists it was incredibly difficult to find the most recent decision saying what the, the permissible uses were in Australia um, and, and that was the other thing I wanted to bring up with you as a journalist covering this kind of topic and in particular, Roundup has been extremely controversial in the last 12 months. Um, it's been what, controversial <laughs> for a long time, really. I mean, it's had, it's, it's had consistent critics for a long time. Mm. Not all, you know, not all the people that you might normally see manning the barricades either. Mm. But sorry. And then one of the challenges uh, we found with that is that we have the World Health Organization's IARC um, declaring that it's a probable carcinogen, while our own uh, pesticides regulator in Australia, the APVMA, says, you know, there's nothing to see here, it's fine. Um, so in terms of communicating risk to the general public, how, how can a journalist, um, you know, inform people um, and protect public health but at the same time not unnecessarily alarm 
people. That's tough. <laughs> uh, I think the best way is to tell people the facts as best you can. I don't understand why the APBMA say that there's clearly no issue based on what IARC have said and you couldn't go and look at the evidence. It isn't clear. Around it, I mean, glyphosate may not cause cancer, but there's some pretty suspicious studies that suggest it might. So in that situation, I think it's pretty brave to say there's no problem. And so from a journalist's point of view, I think it's reasonable for you to point out those inconsistencies, uh, not so people are scared, but so people are informed and then they can make their own decision if they really feel that they need to use glyphosate because there's no suitable other substance, well, okay, use it. But as I said before, use it as little as possible and protect yourself. Tim, I, I, again, I did a quick Google, wonderful thing, Google, if you um, know how to avoid the pitfalls. But um, uh, what I've quickly absorbed from that is that there is a really stark difference between the way the EPA in America uh, views its research on glyphosate and how the WHO body uh, reviews glyphosate um, and that the, the WHO one is far more rigorous uh, in that it will only uh, look at peer-reviewed work. Uh, does it does it rule out uh, studies that have been sponsored by or funded by industry? Essentially. Whereas the EPA uh, is bringing on. Yeah. I don't I mean, doesn't that, doesn't that in itself raise a big question mark about the, about the primary regulator in the United States versus what sounds to me like a much more thorough uh, and responsible review of a suspect chemical? Look, I, I know our IARC system pretty well, and I trust it. I think they're objective. This is the WHO. WHO, so International Agency for Research yeah. on Cancer. Uh, I trust what they do. The people there are good. They bring in objective people uh, for each of their reviews. And as you said, they only use peer-reviewed uh, information. So what does it tell you about the EPA? Well, I don't actually know the EPA system very well, but it worries me if they're using industry data without or putting it on the same level as peer-reviewed. But I don't know the system. I haven't seen it. And I know plenty of people who've worked at the EPA who are really good, uh, but I just don't know their systems well enough to comment. So, so who keeps who keeps the... Uh, Carrie, I'm not taking your job. I'm <laughs> just genuinely curious about this and trying to puzzle it out. So, so who actually has the overview or who keeps the regulators honest? And, you know, we know the failures of regulators in this country. We know, we know why we needed a banking royal commission. And the government comes in and says, regulation is bad. You know, we've got too much red tape. We've got to deregulate sensible regulation. And you see agencies like, uh, like APRA and ASIC in the financial field stripped away of people and resources. And then, and then we wonder why we've got a banking crisis. So who is keeping the regulators honest in this country? Uh, we should go to chemicals. Yes. 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 That's a very ad hoc approach, yeah. particularly as we're in decline. Mm. <laughs> and, um, Kerry, you also talk about uh, one of the things that really struck me. You talk about the agricultural industry's anger at the time against what they saw as do-gooders, hmm. including the media, who are um, you know, pushing for the unnecessary banning of chemicals like DDT. Um, and we have seen some sort of quite an aggressive response in terms of Roundup from the industry. 
Um, so, as a journalist, how would you respond to that kind of Look, argument? Individually, I've got enormous uh, sympathy for farmers, and I've got a kind of uh, an instinctive empathy. I love getting out in the bush, love talking to farmers. But, but the culture of farming is a big factor in the degrading of soil and, uh, and nutrients in soil and degrading the landscape of rural and regional Australia. And, uh, and you cannot uh, necessarily rely on the judgment of farmers. I think farmers are uh, a much more educated class of people today than they were, and there were probably great farmers. Well, not probably. There were some great farmers in the past who who knew their 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 craft. I'll call it for want of a better word, very well. But but uh, but as a group of people, they are responsible for a great deal of degradation in this country. So if a farmer discovers that DDT works brilliantly at killing off all the pests uh, on their land uh, for whatever crop, uh, living, you know, plant or animal that they're, they're raising, you would understand why they'd be reluctant to let it go. And then another chemical comes along to take its place and it works and they think that's fantastic and Roundup comes along and that works and that's fantastic. Of course they're going to be reluctant to see it replaced by something that might be inferior. Um, so I, I think if you're a journalist, particularly, uh, or if you're a politician, you've you've got to. Uh, if, if you're a journalist, you're not. You shouldn't be swayed by that kind of emotional or self-interested response. You've still got to try to be uh, resolute in in doing your research thoroughly and and coming up with a story which is as honest and accurate as you can possibly make it. And if you're a politician, you've got to be careful of any vested interest. But unfortunately, the mainstream political parties today are beholden to too many vested interests. I mean, they they're sort of cash cows for their for their fundraisings. Uh, and it's part of the reason why I think Australians and not just Australians in democracies around the world, people are utterly cynical and mistrustful of their political politicians and the political processes because they see them as being captured by vested interests. And, and why are we seeing that failure of the regulation? Do you, do you I think it's the same. It costs money. It costs money. You know, you've got to have a lot of people on the ground to properly regulate, and they're still, they'd still be random, but the more, it just makes sense. The more people you have conducting the supervision or the surveillance or, or what is scrutiny, uh, the more effective the scrutiny is going to be. And, uh, and if you're a government and you're, one of your primary concerns is cutting back things and you're looking at things you can cut back with, with minimal pain or minimal political pain, um, you cut back on regulators, on regulations, uh, it's going to be a while. If, if there is going to be a negative response from that, it's going to take a while to show up. And even then, uh, it might not hit the vast bulk of people. You know, These days, a lot of people, they, they get home from their jobs, they pull down the curtains and they live in their own small world and they try to deal with their growing list of anxieties. And, uh, and so something like this gets pushed away. And do you think things like lobbying or political donations are having an impact as well? Of course they do. You know, it's, it, Malcolm Fraser said there's no such thing as a free lunch. There isn't. Full stop. You know, I, I, I don't want to get diverted, and I'll try and say this in one or two sentences. I firmly believe after 50 years of watching politicians and the political process and the corruption of the process, I firmly believe that, uh, that, um, that political campaigns, that election campaigns should be, should be funded from the public purse entirely, that there should be rigid and strict uh, um, policing 
of uh, of private donations, and in, in other words, that they that there should be a proper policing process, and there should be proper penalties to prevent illegal donations, and the amount of spending should be capped. Uh, it, uh, truly, so much of the work of the ICACs around Australia relates to this, and you 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 put a finger in the dike here, the water spurts out there, particularly in the last few weeks. Um, so, uh, this year, an OECD review warned that we still have a backlog of 25,000 industrial chemicals, which is 61% of all chemicals in use in Australia, that haven't been assessed by NICNAS, which is our safety regulator. How concerned should people be about that backlog? Um, I think we should be concerned, but we shouldn't be scared. The vast majority of those um, substances have been used in the country probably for several decades, I suspect, um, and most, I would think, without problem. The ones that are that are likely to have caused significant problem, we would probably have known about from use overseas. Nevertheless, it doesn't seem sensible to me to have 70 or what, 60% that we don't know about. Um, NICNAS, the, the people there who do those assessments, I think they do a good job. I think they're very good people, but they've got limited resources. And in terms of what... Seriously, then? Yeah, what, what could we do about it? And who funds them? Or well, industry funds them now. It used to be government, but um, they've become self-funded. Do you think that's now, a good move? I don't like it. It's not industry funding them to tell them what to do. There is a, a separation, but I don't like the idea of industry funding them. I think that's a, a, a social responsibility, and we should be putting in the money to do it, and we should so, be putting so, in more money. So if, um, if NICNAS thinks that they're not being adequately funded, do they go to the industry and say, can you please give us some more money? I'm not sure. I don't, I don't know exactly how it works, uh, but that's where the money comes from. So without suggesting for a moment that that's the reality, but you can understand we're all human. If I'm seeing, if I'm seeing the work that I think is important that we should be doing is limited by the amount of money we're getting, and I know that if we come out with reports that industry's not going to like, uh, that might affect the funding. Uh, you, you know, in journalism, the greatest risk in journalism, I think, is self-censorship. And there's an element of that, uh, where, wherever you've got um, regulators relying on industry for their yeah, um, butter. I certainly can't say there isn't an element of that. I, I'm not sure exactly how it um, runs, but that idea of self-censorship, I mean, it happens in research as well. Yeah. It happens in all areas. So we do have to be careful how we do the funding. Yeah. And uh, again, I don't want to take away your job. <laughs> um, I just want to pick up something that Kerry said before about the lack of resources for regulation, which is a problem in lots of different areas. You talked about the banking, but that's been a problem in occupational health and safety too. And you talked about those two boys who died in on the yeah. confined space in the VAT. And I was saying, look, I would hope that wouldn't happen again. And it still happens occasionally and it should never happen. It does still happen. But the level of occupational health and safety in Australia definitely improved in the 80s and 90s, no doubt. But I think from the late 90s or thereabouts, um, resources and people gradually were pulled out to save money primarily. And 
I think that has is one of the reasons that led to this problem we have now with silicosis. And there are other issues in occupational health and safety too, some that we probably don't know about, because we've taken our eye off the ball and we haven't got people paying attention. We can't afford to have an inspector in every workplace. I don't think we can really no. want that. But we need to have the resources to be able to appropriately educate and regulate where we need to. And I think in occupational health and safety, that isn't there. And I mean, aside from silicosis, where are the other sort of risk areas that you're seeing at the moment? Well, the other areas that I think are concerning are welding exposure, uh, diesel exhaust exposure. I still think there's an issue with asbestos, even though the really bad days of asbestos exposure have gone, fortunately. There are still people exposed in circumstances where they shouldn't be. Uh, well, it's not an area I know very much about, but um, mental health is clearly a big issue in the workplace, in wider community as well, but is a big issue in the workplace that I don't think is well controlled. Uh, there are probably others that I don't know. And of course, Tim, uh, you know, we, we tend to focus on mutagens and carcinogens and teratogens when, we, when we're looking at chemicals and talking about them, but, but there are so many other potential uh, side effects from chemicals, aren't there? Uh, a number of which, I mean, you sparked me when you talked about mental health. I mean, that yeah. poor bloody, uh, that, that couple that I talked to in the Gippsland, a couple of old farmers yeah. uh, who'd been exposed to, um, to a crop dusting thing that had, uh, from, uh, from, a, from a pine forest across the thing. It was Agent Orange, V4D, right. 245T. And, uh, and, and again, the state regulator came and tested their water and told them there was nothing to worry about. And it came out later in a court case subsequently that their water was absolutely riddled with this stuff. Uh, but but their symptoms, you know, neither of them, I don't, neither of them was uh, showing any sign of cancer, but their lives were ruined with their various other health problems. And that's what I wanted to get to. I mean, with tobacco and asbestos, it, it took the deaths of thousands of people over you know, several decades uh, before the problem was recognised. And even once, you know, there was a, a hefty amount of evidence pointing to the dangers, there were still debates that were ongoing after that. Um, are, are you confident that we're not going to see a similar kind of body count when the next asbestos arrives on our doorstep? Well, that's almost unanswerable. Uh, yeah, um, I need to be taken off stage like that person that Kerry interviewed. Uh, <laughs> yeah, it, I think it's hard to answer that. Look, I can't be confident. I guess I would hope that that would not happen. One thing that I think would contribute to it not happening is us having better information about exposure because we really don't have good information about exposure. And if we want to monitor whether we think there are going to be problems or whether the interventions we've got in place now are working, we don't want to wait around for 30 or 40 years to check. I mean, we shouldn't do that. But if we monitor the exposures, I think that would go a fair way to helping. It's, it's not going to help for something that we don't know about, you know, an exposure we don't know about. It's not going to know or help if there's a substance we know about but we don't know it causes a bad problem. That's why you need epidemiology. Uh, but I think if we put some more resources into monitoring exposure, that would both occupationally and in the environment, that would help. Yeah, uh, so, so just one thing to yeah. add, sorry to interrupt. Yeah. But I don't say we should 
monitor everything because you've got to have some use for monitoring exposures. You've got to know you're going to do something with it. So I don't say monitor everything, but I do think there's a, um, a place for us to monitor things that we know we should worry about. There's, a, there's another side to this coin. Well, first of all, the takeout for me from when you talk about asbestos and cigarettes is that both industries fought tooth and nail for many decades, even when they personally knew what they are dealing with. Uh, if I, my memory is correct, the insurance industry in America had decided in 1916 that they were no longer going to insure, uh, I think it was asbestos workers, workers in the asbestos industry. The insurance industry knew in 1916. In this country, James Hardy was still arguing black was white. Uh, in the 70s, workers were still being fearfully exposed to asbestos dust in workplaces, and, and I remember some of the descriptions, um, thick on the ground, you know. So, and, and there are any number of other illustrations of this, and I'm not saying it's automatically true of every company, of every product that is potentially harmful, but the takeout is that you, you cannot, on the face of it, take industry at its word if there is money at stake, share price at stake, shareholder pressure at stake. Uh, morality somehow seems to take a holiday too often in these circumstances. So without running around completely paranoid or totally hostile to the corporate world, you just cannot, there has to be, there has to be proper, independent, energetic, well-funded scrutiny. There isn't. I don't believe, I don't believe it's enough. And uh, sorry, Carrie, but didn't you, um, I, I read it very briefly, there was a story in 2017 uh, on, on Malcolm Turnbull as Prime Minister and regulation. Yeah, that's right. So um, there's been NICNAS, which is the chemical regulator, is undergoing a major reform that comes into effect next year, which I understand is actually going to put more regulation, at, at least in the initial stages, back into the hands of the chemical companies. Uh, well, that's all we've got time for tonight. Um, so I'd like to thank everyone in the audience for coming and listening to the discussion um, and Kerry O'Brien and Tim Driscoll for your insights on the topic. Um, I know as someone that's working in a newsroom, it gives me renewed vigour to go out and ask the hard questions and I'm going to be using my organic toothpaste tonight as well. <laughs> Please give a round of applause for Kerry and Tim. Thanks for listening to the Sydney Ideas podcast series. For more information about our upcoming events or to listen to more podcasts, head to sydney.edu.au forward slash sydney underscore ideas.